This morning's passage from Isaiah, the ninth chapter, the first seven verses. But there will be no gloom for her who is in, in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and And of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The word of God, let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, as we look back so long ago at the words of your prophet Isaiah that were hundreds of hundreds of years in the making, as we, Father, now know and we can look back on this and see so much of it, Father, and we pray that this morning that you would help us to perhaps understand it in a better way, that we look around us and look at our world and uh, take something from this ancient time to be able to apply to our lives and to the world that we live in. And Lord, I pray that the words I speak be not of me, but be of, to you, uh, be of you and bring you glory. For it's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. So as is generally the case, during this time of year, throughout the month of December, I usually take the time off from what we're studying, in this case Romans, and focus on the Christmas season. And I do the same during the Easter celebration as well. So that's why we're in Isaiah this morning as opposed to Romans. This morning we're looking at Isaiah's Old Testament prophecy of the birth of Christ, the, the prophecy of the coming of the Messiah that occurs in the New Testament. And it's really quite unique when we looked at, look at the two Testaments. And they have one thing in common. You can read the Old Testament and you can think, wow, that, that is totally contrary to what I see in the New Testament. But there is one thing or one person that, that marries the two, that, that marries the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that is Jesus Christ. He is the missing link between the two. Without him, that New Testament doesn't make much sense to the Old Testament But with him, you can put it together and you can look back on prophecies throughout that Old Testament. And it is because of Christ that we share so many things with our Jewish brothers and sisters. We share a rich heritage 
And we've seen that, as Paul has, has told us when we've gone throughout the book of Romans, that we, we share a lot of spiritual history with the Jewish and the Jews of Israel. And we take great pride in that history. Now, clearly, the only way of salvation is through Jesus, but we do have sort of an intimate thought or close ties with our Jewish brothers and sisters because we share so much with them. We are perhaps married to them in some respects through Jesus Christ, who was himself a Jew. And those of you that are in a marital relationship know that you share a great many things with your spouse. And the longer you live together, the more things that you share. I will give you a story of a a married couple that was married for almost 70 years. And over that period of time, they they shared a great many things together. And they went to the restaurant one day, and they sat down on the same side of the booth. The waitress came out, and they told the waitress that, in essence, they were starving. The wife said, I could eat a horse. And so they only asked for one menu, though. She says, we usually share a meal. So she asked for one menu, and they decided, and they put in their order. The waitress came back out and and gave them the food that they ordered. And she asked the, the wife if she wanted a plate of her own, and she said, no, thank you. And so the waitress was a little bit perplexed by that. And the waitress watched this unfold, and and she watched the wife that was sitting there just watching the husband eat for an extended period of time, and she didn't really understand what was going on. And so finally, after several minutes of watching this transpire, the curiosity got the best of her. And she goes up to the the table, and she said, is there anything wrong with the food, ma'am? She said, "I, I know you came in, and you said that you were starving. But as I've watched you, you've just sat there and, and watched your husband. And is there anything I can get you? Because I, I would like for you to be able to eat. So it was at that moment that the wife looked up with a toothless smile to the young waitress and said, I'm waiting on his teeth. <laughs> so perhaps they shared more than what we share with our spouses. But nonetheless, we do share Um, oftentimes many different things with our spouses and we share many different things with respect to our spiritual history with the Jews. And so that's how we're starting this morning is to looking back at Isaiah and what led Isaiah to the place that he was at whenever he penned this wonderful, magnificent prophecy of the birth of, of our Lord and Savior. And when we look at that spiritual history We go back to a time when the Jews claimed exclusive rights to God. I mean, he was their God, and they were his people. And the time of Isaiah was a very dark time for the Jews. It was a a dark time for them and their government and everything, that uh, every part or aspect of their life. And it always seems that throughout that, that Old Testament, every time there was a very dark period, Every time that something horrific was happening, God always intervened and painted a beautiful portrait of the Savior Jesus Christ that was coming. I mean, we can rewind it all the way back to Genesis. Rewind it all the way back to Adam and Eve. They took and they ate of the fruit, 
and they were cursed and the, the whole world and earth was cursed and, and Satan was cursed and curses everywhere. But in that moment, in that dark moment, Christ says to Eve, said to Eve, you're going to have a son. And they're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush his head, meaning Satan's. So from the very beginning, he gives that beautiful portrait of Jesus thousands of years, or that's going to happen thousands of years in advance. And he did it time after time after time as good times and bad times and evil times would come and go throughout the children of Israel. They were in captivity to the Egyptians, right? We all know the story. And yet, whenever all the plagues and everything got to its pinnacle, pinnacle, God told Moses to tell the people of Israel that tonight there's going to be an angel of death that's going to come through, and he's going to take the firstborn male of every family. But I'm going to give you a way to get around this. You're going to take blood of a lamb unblemished, spotless lamb, and you're going to take that blood and you're going to put it over your door. And when the angel of death comes to that house, he's going to pass over your house. Beautiful, perfect portrait in a very dark time of Jesus Christ and his coming. Same as with Noah. Destroy everything, but I'm going to save you. And there's a lot of analogies of Christ in the story of Noah. Noah himself, the boat, the ark, many of them. But it is and was in those very dark moments that God loved to paint pictures and write stories about the Savior that was going to come and be born um, in a manger on this earth for salvation. So we have here in Isaiah... A very dark time. It's actually set forth in 2 Kings, but I'm just going to reference that. Ahaz was king, and he was an extremely wicked, mean, and evil king and ruler. He was rotten, and he introduced a lot of idol worship and required that the Israelites worship the idols and actually made sacrifice to the idol. He actually ordered Uriah. You remember Uriah? In the year of the Uriah, Isaiah 6, chapter 6, the same Uriah, the priest to move the altar of the Lord and replace it with an altar to Moloch, which was a graven image, a figment of their imagination, what was an idol. And King Ahaz even sacrificed his own son to this idol as a burnt offering. Moloch was worshipped by the people of Israel, and sacrifices were to be made to him. The sacrifices would often include the sacrifice of small children. So you get a picture of this dark time that Isaiah has when he's writing about the joy, unspeakable joy that is to come. And so it was in this very dark time that, that Isaiah was writing And I reference this dark time because I think we're on the precipice of a dark time for Christianity. That was a very dark time for the Jewish nation and to be a Jew as a whole. 
but I think we're kind of on the beginnings of that dark time for us as Christians as well. And, and I think that we can take a lot from what we have in Isaiah's prophecy that was written uh, so many years ago. Now you think, you look at that, and you think, well, no idol worship that I know of, right? I mean, long ago was the time that we built this figure out of gold or silver, silver and bowed down and worshiped that idol. That, that doesn't happen very often that, that I'm aware of. Nor do we sacrifice children. Now, before we get all self-righteous and indignant, I want to spend a few moments on this whole notion that I just talked about. Move to Romans 1, 22. It's been a long time ago, but we did go through it, I promise you. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You remember this. This was an image of an image of an image. Sort of a photocopy. And so they exchanged the glory of the immortal God. They, they traded off worshiping God for the worship of something else. Ourselves. That's what it is. We live in a humanistic society. And unfortunately, humanism has infiltrated the church. If you look at the way the church was 2,000 years ago, it hardly resembles what it was then. Humanism has infiltrated the church, and that's not a good, good thing. Humanism is an outlook or a system that puts the supreme importance on this guy, right? This guy, that it's all about me. It's all about what I want, what I desire at all costs. That's what it is when you take away all the fluff. It's all about what makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside. The idea that I don't have to answer to anyone, no man, no divine being, that this world revolves around me. That's basically when you break it down to. That's what humanism means. We worship at the altar of ourselves. And nothing is going to get in our way. God forbid that his word says that we aren't supposed to do something that we enjoy. Right? Because humanism says that my enjoyment is the number one thing in this life. So what's going to happen if this word stands in a way that something Scott enjoys? Then I'm either going to throw it away or I'm going to try to interpret it in such a way that I don't want to believe it. If you can't see or haven't been able to see over the last couple of years that we are at the beginning of a very dark time... I don't know what else is going to convince you. Because in my mind's eye, it's pretty obvious. We worship ourselves. Our number one desire is for our own pleasure, for our own benefits, no matter what the cost may be, no matter what God says about it. We have made ourselves into idols. Those same people 
who will say that it is stupid to worship some rock, some gold statue, also worship themselves. And I will assure them that that rock will be around when they're in the grave and gone and rotted. There's more lasting power in that rock than what we have within us. They say, well, I might worship myself, but I don't sacrifice children. Time out. Time out. Is that really true? Is that really the case? I don't think that's the case. I say to you this morning that roughly 2,350 children are sacrificed each and every day in this country. 2,350 children are sacrificed each and every day in this country. And why is it? It's not because the government allows it. It's because we worship ourselves. That we are the most important thing in this universe and nothing else is more important. If there is a child that's going to interrupt my life or put me out of the way, so to speak, then it's gone. It's gone. People want to blame it on the government. Don't blame it all on the government. It is a heart issue that is internal and it is a way of life for godless people. It's a heart issue. I mean, after all, our government's a representative republic, right? So whenever we get to the point where we have an idolization of ourselves and those people that idolize themselves more than any other thing outnumber those that idolize God and worship God, you're going to get a majority of government officials representing those. It's just logic. So the reality that it is allowed is just an indication that self-worship is the form of worship carried on by a majority of people in this country. It is a heart issue way more than it is anything else. And unless and until the gospel of Jesus Christ reaches the hearts and minds of people that is unadulterated by humanism, that tells us God is the most important entity in this universe, and that we are blips on the radar screen that are here for a very short period of time, and eternity is a mighty long time, that our lives should be focused on selflessness and not selfishness, it's never going to change. It's not. That's just the reality of humankind. It's the reality of the dark state that we find ourselves in at this time of our world. So in like manner, our period of time is dark, folks. It's not unicorns. It's not beauty. It's ugly. It's dark. It's selfish. It's all about us. And it was no different than what it was in Isaiah's time. But take heart. We got the same story this morning that Isaiah had in that time. That we have beautiful, wonderful, saving hope in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But there will be no gloom for 
her who is in anguish, no gloom. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. I'm not going to spend a great deal of time going detail by detail through these five verses. They're pretty difficult, to be honest with you. But that aside, it appears if you read these verses, you can sort of get the meaning that Isaiah was talking to a specific time. But we know that there was a futuristic aspect to that as well. Prophecy can be very difficult to understand. It can be difficult to understand what the prophet's talking about and specifically the period of time the prophet's talking about whenever he gives that prophecy. Oftentimes we read prophecy and we see it and it's one-dimensional. That's our problem. Has any of you ever been to a large mountain range? Anybody ever been to the Rocky Mountains? So whenever you're, you're, you're approaching a large mountain range, you see this big monolithic mountain range with huge peaks, and it, it, it's just one-dimensional, right? And as you approach it, it remains one-dimensional. But as you get closer, that dimension of depth starts spreading out, right? So what you have is you may have a very large peak that could be hundreds of miles past what the beginning stages of that range are so as you get closer and closer to that that depth element begins to get bigger and bigger and you realize that it's not just one mountain range that looks like you could just drive over and you're done no it's filled with peaks and valleys and and different huge mountains and small little bluffs or whatever that's the way prophecy is so when we read prophecy and we're reading it from thirty thousand feet It's very difficult because all we see is that mountain range from 100 miles away. But as we approach it, and as we look at it, we can understand that there is another dimension to it. That there is that depth dimension that we couldn't see on the surface. It's the same way with prophecy. And we see that even though Isaiah was talking about a lot of things that were happening at that time, He was also talking about things that would happen a thousand, two thousand years later. And that's what makes it very difficult. But when we're in the middle of that mountain range, we can look back and we can say, hey, I see that back here, but I can also see forward. And as we keep going, then we understand the full breadth and gravity of that prophecy, and it's the same way. So we have to keep that in mind as we look and study prophecy, because if we don't, Then we get caught up and say, well, this didn't happen, or this already happened, or he couldn't have meant this. Well, he's seeing it all in one dimension, and we can't really understand what he's saying. I didn't finish these. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor You have broken off as on the day of Midian for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So he's talking about hope being in the future and he's talking about a lot of bad things happening and then we get to verse 6. Here it is. For to us a child is born, 
to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What beautiful words, and we hear them so often this time of the year. This was Isaiah's prophecy of Jesus Christ, that he came as a child and was born. Totally opposite of what someone would think a king would do, right? I've said it many times. If I were king, I probably wouldn't. Ah, who am I fooling? I wouldn't come to earth that way, right? It's just part of our human nature. We want the pomp and circumstance and everything that goes along with it, yet the most powerful creator, the one who spoke light into existence, turns everything upside down and decides he's going to come to earth as a helpless child. And he's going to come to earth and choose parents that have nothing. That don't even have the ability to find a place to be able to stay on the night of the birth of the king, of the creator, of all things. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. He came as a child and was born in the same manner that we were born. To us, a son is given. So we have, we have the flesh, we have the spirit, the son of God. God sent his son to clean up this mess that they made of themselves, that we are making of ourselves. To offer us hope. To offer us hope of a better eternity than what we have now. The government shall be upon his shoulder. So here we have separation from the mountain range, right? We have a child being born. That happened 2,000 years ago. A government being upon his shoulder. But do you see the confusion at the time, right? You see the confusion of the Jews whenever they read this or those in Christ's day. They thought that he should be a ruler. He should be king, Overthrow Rome and make him king because Isaiah said the government would be upon his shoulder. But they were viewing it in one dimension. It was not. There are thousands of years that separate the first part of verse 6 from the second part of verse 6. There will be a time, there will be a second coming, and the second part of verse 6, or the middle section there, will be the truth. The government will be upon his shoulders. He will have that perfect kingdom where there is no pain, there is no suffering, no hunger, no abuse, no jail, no death. Then we move on to the names of Jesus. Wonderful counselor. He is now the perfect counselor. So we've seen, we've gone, we've jumped back and forth thousands of years here in the same passage. We've gone to the middle of that mountain range, back to the beginning, to the end of it. He is now a wonderful counselor, and you listen to his word, and you obey his voice. Life on this earth and all eternity will be much better. Incomprehensible joy, as Chris Tomlin sang about. Romans 11 tells us that by him and through him all things were created. He is a mighty God. So he's a wonderful counselor. He's there to counsel us gently, 
And yet at the same time, he is a mighty God. It is by and through Christ that all things were created. And it is by Christ that all things will be judged. We need to keep that in perspective. Everlasting Father. He is the Father that will never leave us. He is the Father that death cannot separate us from no matter what. We saw that in Romans as well. Death could not hold him, and he resides within us as individual believers now and forevermore. Prince of Peace. He came to give us peace with the Father because sin had put a great cavern between us. And he came to give us that peace, and he has given us that peace. But secondarily, he gives us the ability to have peace with each other. We listen to his words as counselor, then we have that peace with each other now as well as in the future. The peace comes from sharing the same spirit, which is way more peaceful than sharing the same DNA. Being one in spirit provides a very unique closeness and familial type relationship that no other bond can compare. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Seeing the other backside of this mountain range. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So we see we get to verse 7 and it is clear that we find ourselves looking into the future. The increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. It will be eternal. So we look back over where we've, from where we've come and we can see the birth of our Lord and Savior. And that's the celebration that we have this time of year. And then we turn around and we look forward and we can see him coming again. And we can see that there's going to be a time when that government is set up and it's going to be wonderful and beautiful and perfect in every way. And there will be no end to that. So we take great joy looking backwards and we take great joy and hope looking forwards regardless of how dark the present may be. And I hope that that can sink in this morning. Because even though there is darkness now, there is beauty just over that horizon. There is joy forevermore just over that horizon. You know, I had a, an epiphany a few years ago. When you're born in this country, you hopefully are brought up to believe it's the greatest country on earth, and, and I was. Believed that, still believe it today. But unfortunately, at that time, I used to think, it's going to exist from now on. That's a naive thought. We are three long lives into this experiment. Right? And I think it's extremely naive to the think that it's going to last forevermore. Not going to happen. And we can hear the beginning drum beats to that dissolution every day. Turn on the news. 
The Roman Empire, in all that it was, lasted a thousand years. I mean, that's three times, over three times longer than what we've had this little experiment going on. I have no doubts that this will end. But there is one that's way better, and it will never end. And there will be no injustice in that. It'll be perfect in every way, no pain, no suffering, perfect harmony. No fighting, no constant bickering and arguing because we think differently. Gone forevermore. That's the government I want to be a part of. That's the government that Christ Jesus will sit up and rule from. That's the hope we have in the future and for all eternity. There will truly be a day, and it is coming, when there is no idol worship. Regardless of whether it's a silver or gold statue or somebody pointing back at themselves with two thumbs. None. Only one type of worship. And that is the worship of the one that deserves it. And that is God the Father. So as we go through the season, season, let us allow that hope and assurance as we turn on the TV and we see how awful things are. Let us know. That in the not-too-distant future, there's going to be someone coming that will set up a perfect government. And everything will be wonderful, giving his counsel that he is mighty God and he is our Savior. Let us hold fast to that hope in this dark time, the same way our Jewish brothers held fast to the hope in Isaiah's time and that dark moment in their history. Amen? Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank you for these words of Isaiah so very long ago. And they were spoken into a very dark, decaying time for the Jewish nation. And again, this morning as we look, there is a lot wrong in our world. And there is a lot of ungodly things that take place each and every day out there. But let us not lose hope. As we celebrate looking backwards to the birth of our Lord and Savior, let us also celebrate looking forwards to the return of Him who gives us eternal life. That we know that there will one day be the perfect King that will set up His kingdom, your kingdom, here on this earth. And it will be a glorious one in which we are all eager to serve and be a part of. And Father, as we go throughout this season, let us look introspectively at our own lives, at our own relationship with you. And if we do not know you, if we live our lives worshiping ourselves, Father, we pray that you would draw that from us, that we turn our lives toward you and repent of idol worship and all that goes along with it. And Father, we pray this morning that you be glorified for us in Christ's precious name. Amen. All rise.